This week, we have Familiar Faces Week, Advent team. Uh, these are uh, men who have served the uh, Advent, do ministry here at the Advent, and we will begin today with Gil Cracky, who has been uh, with the Advent for many years. Indeed, he's been here 20 years. He began uh, 20 years ago as Director of Youth Ministries. Uh, he then uh, took over the in formulating and scheduling the Christian Ed, Christian education here at the Advent. And not only does he uh, regulate it and oversee it, but he's also a very fine preacher uh, himself. There's not a heretical uh, bone in his body. Uh, Gil is also a licensed Christian counselor, specializing in individual couples and family counseling. But most of you uh, know Gil uh, as well as I do. And I, I asked Gil today if, to tell me something that I could share with you that uh, most people would not know. Uh, and I learned today that he collects dolls, which was, uh, <laughs> which is not so. <laughs> but he said, uh, just come up with something. So that's what I came up with. <laughs> I don't think that's true. Uh, uh, I should go to Maymay and ask her what, what, uh, something about Gil and no one else knows. But it would have to be, I would have to be able to share it publicly. So I, I didn't go. Gil will preach to us after we sing the first two stanzas of hymn 525. A reading from the Gospel according to St. John, the first chapter. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. John the Baptist. John the Baptist was not a quiet man. Those who knew him would not have described him as a man of subtlety or mystery. He would not have been confused with the most interesting man in the world. And here at the beginning of John's Gospel, this unnuanced and subtle as a truck figure... The one we see, by the way, on the cover of the Lenten brochure with the long, bony finger pointing to the crucified Christ. This man, John the Baptist, makes the pronouncement, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The reference here is to the numerous instances in the scriptures in which a lamb or something alive is offered to God. The lamb is a substitute offered as an appeasement to God for our sins and sinfulness. Many of us know the story of Israel's taking the blood of the lamb sacrificed at Passover and smearing it on the doorpost of their houses so that the Lord would pass over the house and not bring death. We remember the ram caught in the thicket by its horns, which Abraham no doubt eagerly sacrificed to the Lord instead of his son Isaac. We will remember the goat who was sent into the wilderness every year on Yom Kippur after Aaron professed over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel, all of their transgressions, all of their sins. This is where we get the word scapegoat. And we will remember the great words of Isaiah, who foretells one who, like a sheep, was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent. 
So John speaks with all that imagery and meaning implanted in his declaration. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, the one who the law requires and to whom the prophets point. Behold, the one who shall be for you a sacrifice. The one who will stand for you in your place. One who is your substitute. The word substitute, that's what I'm talking about. The word substitute brings several things to mind, some of which are not at all what John is referring to. Though many of us feel like we're getting along pretty well. Who hasn't daydreamed of an alternate in one form of another? An alternate of yourself that you could send out for the day. A mini-me, so to speak, that you could send to the office to do some, so you could do something important. Like stay home and empty your, your, your DVR queue. In this daydream, you can eat whatever you want, and your alternate will go to the gym, and he'll stay on the diet. While we're at it, the substitute can pull things off just a little bit better, react just a little bit more patiently, and word it just a little more precisely. In this fantasy, the substitute you is always an improved you, a mulligan in the flesh, a living do-over. I most often associate the word substitute in a sports context. Send in the subs brings to mind the scrubs being put in at the end of the game when the game is either too far ahead or too far behind where it doesn't really matter anymore. This is why I didn't start too many basketball games in my illustrious career, but I, I finished more than my fair share. Sending in the subs in an improved and new you, these aren't at all what John has in mind as he sees Jesus and immediately recognizes him as the Lamb of God. He does not state, Behold, one who can take your meager offering and multiply it. He's just glad you tried. Behold, the one who sits beside you as you drive through life, serving as a type of tom-tom. The Lamb of God bears no resemblance to a life coach who has come to work with your strengths and to work around your weaknesses so that you can get back in the game. He's not a sub who goes in for you while you catch your breath. Rather, as John points to Jesus as the Lamb of God, John points to the substitute we desperately need. Intuitively, you know that you need another to be for you and to, to be what you cannot be for yourself. Bob Dylan recognized this and pushed back straight away as someone wants him to be for her everything. To only be strong and never weak and never not be there. I'm not the one you want, babe. I'm not the one you need. You're looking for someone to die for you and more. It ain't me, babe. No, 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 it ain't me, babe. It ain't me you're looking for. In a gathering like this, six, maybe ten of you, remember fondly those years, uh, which we look back and affectionately know as junior high. The rest of us suffered through its near constant and unremitting and suffocating judgment. I remember once how quickly things changed in that groupthink that is called the adolescent male. The last period of the day in my life in junior high was called athletics. It was the time in which we all belonged to the coaches. We used to play something called frizzolet. For all I know, the coaches made this game up. I'm fairly certain it's gone the way of yard darts. It was just like dodgeball, but we played it with frisbees. So if you have a picture of about 25 frisbees and 40 boys 
coming from every which way in this closed cell that we called the small gym. That just meant there was no place to run and hide. All that was missing were the blades sharpened on the edges of the frisbees like something out of Mad Max. So it was one of these days, I assume, we were sitting there, waiting to play, sitting on the floor with our backs against the wall. I suppose we were waiting for the coach, like boys do when they're killing time together. We were making fun of each other. I don't remember what that was about. But at some point, the moment turned. When did the moment turn? There never was a signal, but suddenly, without transition, we were, every one of us, making unmerciful fun of somebody. It was raw ridicule. The kid was a have-not, dirty and rough, without any real friends. He had an edge honed from always having to defend himself. And the whole of us, I was right there, we were laying into him. And the words grew into a venomous chant. It was a scene straight out of Lord of the Flies. And the words had barbs. And their wrath was well directed. It's that kid I remember. He was just sitting there, leaning against the wall, taking it, trying not to cry, not doing a very good job at trying not to cry, trying not to explode in anger, trying not to choke on the judgment. He could only just sit there with his back against the wall, butting his head as rhythmically as a metronome, surrounded effectively by everybody else in his world. We were chanting and clapping the floor. We were clapping the floor with our palms and our feet. It was unrelenting in its tenacity. Ten seconds earlier, this kid was anonymously and happily a part of the chorus. And now he bore the brunt of a cruel abuse with the wrath of his entire world being poured upon him. You know, I've always understood the crowd on Friday morning as they stood in front of Pilate and they screamed for Barabbas instead of Jesus. So what do you do at a time like that? What do you do if you're that kid? You're desperate for a substitute. You're desperate for anyone, for any reason to take the heat and the focus off of you and to turn it back on someone else. Anyone else, just turn the judgment away. I'm reminded of that scene towards the end of Orwell's 1984, where the main character Winston is taken into the dreaded Room 101 to be tortured by his worst fears. When told that his girlfriend, Julia, the woman with whom he had shared life-giving but forbidden love, is also somewhere in the building, what does Winston do? He screams and he pleads and he begs as a broken man for a substitute. Do it to Julia! Do it to Julia! He cries. We not only want, but we need a substitute. We need another to stand for us, taking the heat, the accusation, the fear evoked by judgment. For we stand in judgment 24-7. And not just before the world, but before God. Indeed, the deeper truth of our condition is that before God, we are not unjustly accused. The problem of being human is that the situation is far worse than I think it is. Whether I like it or not, whether I know it or not, whether I want to admit it or not, 
before the just judgment of the law of God, my guilt is real and actual. Jesus left no doubt what the measure of this judgment is in the first chapter of his Sermon on the Mount. Do you want to stand outside of judgment and accusation? The bar is as straightforward as it gets. Perfection. Not perfection as we normally consider it, for we speak blithely of having perfect abs, or that's a perfect chair for this corner, or the perfect day. We automatically compare our lives and our jobs and our families to some mythical perfection. Think about it. Like some theoretical point in math, these perfections exist only in concept. They don't actually exist. As soon as you get great glutes, they sag. Or, as, or you see someone else who's in the third row up front who's got even more perfect glutes, more perfect. As soon as you arrive, you need to go a little bit further. As soon as you get it, you want a little bit more. The only actual perfection, the only perfection that is not abstract or theoretical is the perfection of God. The concrete and real perfection of God. And to this perfection we are compared by His law. Be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. And this perfection, perfection begotten, not made, became flesh and dwelt among us. Behold, the Lamb of God without blemish or defect. And this brings us squarely to what is going on between you and God. And the declaration that we heard at the beginning. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the declaration of what is. Behold, the one whom God has given as our substitute, begotten from perfection, as the one who stands in my place to bear the brunt and the bruise of a just judgment. And precisely here, here God declares, Behold, The one who is what you are not. The one who has what you do not. The one who did what you cannot. The Lamb of God slain for the sin of the world. Delivered to death for our sins and raised for our justification. The one who in actual actuality and in real reality can be for me what I cannot be. He is our substitute. The one who knew no sin that was made to be sin so that I might become the righteousness of God. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Quoting Dylan once more, It is true that I pay in blood, but not my own. Behold the Lamb of God. And so what about you? What have you done, or left undone, or said, or left unsaid, for which Christ, the perfect Lamb, is your substitute? Strike all of that. It's so much more. More than what you do or did or didn't do or didn't say, who are you for whom Christ is the Lamb of God? As you consider that question and the twin reality of your need and God's provision working its way into you like some form of a penetrating oil into a a frozen nut, mark... This is no plea for you to think about a Lenten discipline or a plan for improvement. I am not asking you to ask God to put his sub in the game for you. I am not asking you to draw near to him. And I am not asking you to ask him to come to you. 
Instead, hear the declaration of the truth proclaimed by John the Baptist, the fact of what has been done. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We pay in blood that is not our own, and the payment has been paid in full. Do it to Julia! Do it to Julia! He cried as he unraveled in room 101. Though we provoke, most justly, God's wrath and indignation against us, His property is always to have mercy. It is here at the crossroads of these two truths, God's judgment and wrath, as well as His mercy, that the weight of the pronouncement that the Lamb of God fully and completely offered for my need in my place is known fully. Hearing Winston cry, do it to Julia, it's not hard for me to imagine. It's ashamedly all too easy to imagine my voice crying, do it to Jesus, do it to Jesus, don't do it to me, do it to him, do it to anybody else besides me. And God, whose property is always to have mercy, demonstrates his own love towards us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It was done to Jesus. Christ died for me. Christ died for you. And it is finished. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In Jesus' name, amen.